Okay, we are on page 110 in the Catechism. Um, and we were just finishing up last Sunday the section on idols, on the prohibition of idolatry. Uh, and um, the questions asked here, uh, not only look at idols as uh, images which are carved uh, to be the image of some kind of animal that you worship as God, uh, but also other things. And this goes to question 277. Um, I'm going to move this down so it's not quite so loud. Uh, are idols always carved images? And the answer is no. Relationships, habits, aspirations, and ideologies can become idols in my mind if I look to them for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, or despair. Um, and you might notice this, that um, many ideologies which, which surround our world today uh, are really seeking to be a salve to people's despair, uh, seeking to be a salve to poverty. Um, you may remember, or maybe you don't remember, but, but if you've ever studied the Russian Revolution, what was the thing that was held up as, we're going to solve this once and for all? It's, this ideology is going to solve poverty, right? Um, it's the ideology put in practice is going to solve poverty. And I think what, what we as Christians say is ideologies don't solve anything. Um, what solves things? always faith working through love, right? Um, and, and not just uh, the kind of love which we have as human beings, which is kind of weak, weak sauce, yes? Um, but, but, but love which is bounded by God's command, um, which works at his will. All right. So let's move on to the third commandment. Actually, no, I, wanna, I actually want to look at this. Uh, question 280 about, idol, about idols. How can you love God in worship? The Holy Scriptures teach me how to worship God, and the church's liturgy guides my worship in keeping with the Scriptures. I can show love to God by worshiping him in this way. Now, I want to say a little bit about this. Many Americans are under the impression that worship is a very much like personal, individualized thing. And I will grant you, there's some of that, right? There's some of that where worship is very personal. Um, but what's the first thing about worship? How are we to worship? as God commands us to, right? Uh, I don't know if you remember, in, and I think it's in uh, Numbers, there's this incredible exchange between uh, God and the sons of Aaron. Do you remember this? And, and the sons of Aaron go up with, with fire before the Lord, and they think they're doing this incredibly good thing by burning this fire, and, and it's probably incense as well, and they think, yeah, we're going to go make an offering of incense before the Lord. And what happens? God kills them. <laughs> Why? Because of their kind of strange fire. They... they have not been commanded to do this, and they do it anyway. Um, and, and their father's response, Aaron, is, is rather, rather interesting. He, he just says, well, I don't want to get caught, and not caught up in that. It's like they, they, he's, he kind of just says, well, he deserved it, right? Uh, because, because divine worship is, is, uh, is, a, given, is a given thing. Um, and you might ask, well, how is it a given thing at Christ Church on a Sunday morning? Well, a lot of it isn't, um, in the sense that, uh, that uh, we, we enter into a living tradition that uh, somebody devised at some point, 
right? But even in that sense, it's guided by the Holy Spirit. And when we submit to that living tradition, um, it means that we're not, we're not entering into something that we ourselves would make up if we, if we had our druthers, right? Um, and I've known people through the years who said, you know, Father, I, 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 I love the liturgy at Christ Church, or not really, this doesn't happen at Christ Church, other churches, we'll just say other churches. Uh, and they say, but, you know, I wish we would change this word to be this instead. And I, and I say to them gently, you know, I don't think you understand how it works. I mean, I don't sit there every Sunday and say, well, what words are we going to say this morning? Um, it's, it's given to me. I'm under authority, and it's given to you. And it's given to you as well. Um, so I want to encourage you in that and just say that uh, submitting to worship that is, that, is, that, is, uh, that, is, that is given to you in a living tradition um, is, is a great exercise in humility. It offers us an opportunity to uh, set aside our preferences uh, for something greater than that. Um, and it's a way to show, to show God love, yes? Because here's the thing. If you were to sit there in your room, God, this thing is loud. If you were to sit there in your room this morning and say, you know, I really want to love God more. How can I do that? You'd probably come up with a, with a bunch of different ways. And probably 90% of them would be wrong, right? <laughs> and and I've, I've actually seen this happen before where you say to somebody, well, you know, what do you think you can do? This is in spiritual direction. What do you think to, you can do to love God more? So well, I think I'd like to go out and, and do this incredible work of, of charity for the poor and all this. And, and I sit there and say, well, that's all very interesting. But what, how has God specifically asked you to love him better? Um, and, and, uh, and very often it's, it's, it's the life of prayer that goes out the door first. Um, it's the life of worship which goes out the door first. And we think we have to do all these grand gestures. Um, and the reality of it is, Worshiping in the way that God commands is, is, is absolutely necessary to the whole thing. Um, so I want to encourage you in that. Okay, let's move on to the third commandment. What is the third commandment? The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does it mean not to take God's name in vain? All forms of God's name are holy, and those who love him should use his name with reverence, not lightly or for selfish purposes. You remember how God gives his name to Moses uh, out of the midst of the burning bush, yes? And, uh, and what is it that God says when, when Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? Yeah, yeah he says, tell them I am sent you. Um, uh, the God who is being itself sent you. Um, and this, is, this word became um, not only the word which was used, and, and if you ever pick up a Bible and you read the word the Lord, that's, that's how that word is being translated, as the Lord. Because uh, Jews would not ever, would, at a certain point, stop saying the word um, because they were afraid they'd, they might take it in vain. And instead they would say something like Adonai instead, which means literally the Lord. Um, so there was, there was this uh, emphasis on saying, well, we're just not going to use the word at all. Now, is this, what the, is this what the third commandment means? Never use God's name at all? No, it's, the context is everything, right? It doesn't say you shall not take the, na the name of the Lord your God. What? No, it says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in what? In vain. But what does in vain mean? Okay, vanity, right? Vanity. It's in a selfish way, for selfish purposes. Um, lightly, without reverence. Um, and so what we, what we say about this commandment is that um, the name of God must be used uh, with, with a deep reverence. Um, because we're not speaking about... 
very touchy today. <laughs> We're not speaking about, uh, uh, you know, our friend who lives down the street. And we're not speaking of the President of the United States. Um, we're speaking about the God of all creation, uh, the God of all, um, from whom we draw our own being. We're contingent upon him, yes? Um, so it's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, in a sense, it's like cursing the ground you walk on <laughs> or, or cursing the air you breathe. Um, question 283, how can you use God's name irreverently in false or half-hearted worship oppression of the poor, and conflicts cloaked with divine cause. People use God's name without reverence for him and only to further their own goals. Let's break that out down just a bit. False or half-hearted worship, what does that look like? Yeah, well, sure, but... False, false and half-hearted worship is, is the kind where, where, uh, where we stand as the arbiters of what is true and what is not. And especially, we need to be careful of this, when we try to make the worship as acceptable to as many people as possible, it becomes false. Um, and this is a major tendency today, isn't it, that churches have. They say, well, we want it to be as, as non-offensive as possible to the widest variety of people, and so we're going to just make it very, very, very toned down. And it becomes something different from Christian worship. It becomes something different from the worship that God commands. Um, Half-hearted worship, what is that about? Oh, yes, well, that's when we come into church and we go, uh... <laughs> When is this ever going to end? And, and I just want to get to breakfast. And, you know, you're thinking about what you've got to do for the rest of the day and how much more fun that's going to be than this. Um, that's probably the one that we struggle the most with, yes? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's when, our, when our minds start to wander. And worse, when our hearts start to wander. Uh, when you're sitting in the pew and you say, oh, isn't Joanne's dress so beautiful? I wish I had a dress that nice, right? Why can't I have a dress like that? Or why can't I have a voice like that? Or why can't I have, you know, a family like his? And it's just one thing after another, and all of a sudden you find out, well, who'd you come to church for? Um, and, and this happens a lot, uh, I find, especially when it comes to the, to the, to the hymns we sing, right? Because there's always going to be somebody there who says, why would we have to sing that one? Well, first of all, I can guarantee you, Jeff Fish and I put way more thought into it than you ever will, right? <laughs> Second of all, um, I have to say, it's just a great blessing to me that I'm not the object of divine worship, um, and you're not either. Um, and so when we come wanting to have our, our desires fulfilled in the way that we worship, um, we've, we've entered into something which is not, not correct. Now, that's a very, there, there's, a, there's a fine line to be struck, isn't there? Because there is such a thing as bad worship, right? There is such a thing as, as, uh, as, as dumbed down, uh, boring, uh, inaccurate. Uh, there, there are worship songs that are terrible, that should never see the light of day. But, but just trust me on this one. There's a lot more thought going into it than you, than you put in in the 10 seconds that you said, I really you know, find this is just so unsingable and so miserable. Well, you know, uh, let, it be, let it be a time for you to offer that miserable experience up, right? Um, go ahead. Yeah. 
Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as we don't really mean it, yeah. There, there are manifold problems with stepping into the church and, and stepping into worship and having, uh, having truth on the back burner, so to speak. Um, there are many, many, many problems with stepping into worship as if, uh, as if what we proclaim in the creeds is secondary to that. Um, and, and the simple way to put it is that Christian orthodoxy, that word orthodoxy actually refers to not only right teaching, but right worship. Um, why? Well, the ancient church that, that coined that phrase, uh, orthodoxy, knew that both matter immensely. Um, and in the ancient church, there was this little phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, which means that the law of prayer is the law of believing, and so on and so forth. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And if you want to know what the church believes, where do you look? To her worship. Right? And if you want to know how the church worships and who the church worships, who do you look to? You look to the creeds. That's the God we worship. So there's this, there's this relationship between the two. And I think, to just say what I think is going on, I think in many places there's this saying, of, well, why can't we just let uh, our creedal affirmations drop out of Christian worship? Because, after all, everybody believes something different. And then we'll enter into to real worship. Well, that doesn't work. There's a, there's a significant problem there. Um, I want to move on, though. Um, we can use God's name irreverently in oppression of the poor. Well, what, is, what does that look like? Well, in a lot of places, this looks like, um, this looks like exacting uh, uh, debt service from someone who absolutely can't pay it and swearing that you'll go after it. Um, by the way, uh, taking, the name of the Lord's, taking the name of the Lord in vain has always included a kind of false swearing. Um, swearing that you'll do something, making oaths that you can't keep, uh, making oaths that to keep would be wrong. Um, not only that, but uh, some people have, um, have, uh, have through history under kind of uh, false piety have actually actively oppressed the poor, have actively... Uh, taken from the poor. You think of, the, uh, of, of what was going on in the temple. You know, when Jesus shows up to cleanse the temple, do you know what he's doing? Driving out the money changers? Okay, the money changers are participating in one of the great market markups and ex you know, currency exchange uh, scams in history, right? Where it's, you know, if, if, uh, if, if uh, Roman coins would buy a turtle, you know, one Roman coin would buy a turtle dove, well, it's going to take five of those in temple currency. And that's the only thing you can buy to buy the right sacrifice. So, so these money changers were making, they were making incredible loads of money. Um, and they were doing it all in the name of God. 
That's oppression of the poor. Um, well, there you go. There's another one is evangelism, you know, televangelists who, who say uh, things like, you might be very poor right now, and you might look in your bank account, and there's, there's $200 there right now, and there's not enough to pay your bills for the rest of the month, but just send me that money, and it'll come to you in other ways. And that happens, I don't know, if you, were to, if you were to watch TV on a Sunday morning, which none of you do, I know, you're always here, but, <laughs> but you would see tons of that going on, tons of that going on. Um, conflicts cloaked with divine cause. Now, this is both political conflicts, international conflicts cloaked with divine cause, which you can see all the time, right? I mean, how often is it that we as Americans go to war and we, we, we sing God bless America the whole time, right? Well, you know, there's, there's patriotism, right, in the right sense, which is that, that, um, that God calls us to love our country and love, love, uh, love what our country stands for. There's also uh, a sense of... Um, bringing God into conflict where he doesn't belong. He's not, he's not, he's not on one side or the other, I can tell you that. Um, you so it's... Get, you don't get chills off the air. <laughs> yeah, well... So many of those things are so, uh, so built into our culture. Um, but they're not worship. Right? Um, and I would say that's, there's another thing that goes on too, which is worship of the nation within the church. Um, and that's something which is very, very, very problematic. Um, you know, hauling the American flags into the church, uh, 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 singing incredibly patriotic and almost godless songs. Um, and and, and, and that's, that doesn't fit the bill either. That's taking the name of the Lord in, in vain. So, so yep. in my uh, our former Episcopal church, mm-hmm. we would, they would haul the oh, yeah. flag up there. Every Sunday, yep. And I think I would say... Um, well, I will tell you, you'll never see, at least as long as I'm here as the rector, you'll never see an American flag up in the chancel, ever. And the reason is not because I hate American flags. It's that, um, and I'll tell you this, um, it's that lots of different people take into account what that flag means when they come in. It's got lots of different connotations, lots of different things that people take away. Um, and not only that, but, you know, when the nation turns and turns against us, are we putting the symbol of the nation up in our chancel for that? Are we, are we standing in support of things that the nation does that are wrong? Right? So there's a real problem there. Um, one of the great examples of that in the last century was the German Christian movement in, in, in Germany, where many, many, many German Christians uh, tried to reconcile the understanding that Adolf Hitler is the Fuhrer and the leader of the nation with Christian believing. Um, and, and it, in fact, it wasn't that hard to do because they were pretty much already there. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd encourage you to read about a lot of that. It, there was a, and there was a confessing movement which sprang up which said, no, let's not get it confused. The, the aims of the church and the aims of the state are, are often aligned, but they're never the same. Um, so I want to make sure that's clear, you know, and so um, that's just for what it's worth. Um, there's also, I would say one more thing about that. We have, we have lived, so many of us, so long in the world of what's, what's, what's rightly referred to as American civil religion that it's hard to shake. The idea behind American civil, civil religion is that the church is useful to the state because the church makes moral people. 
who can go off to war, who can serve as politicians, who can do all these great things. Um, and, and so often what happens is that to the extent that um, we're creating uh, faithful disciples who put discipleship to Jesus first and not patriotism first, we're at odds with that end. Now, American civil religion will never get, they'll never get that confused because they always say, hey, listen, uh, you know, it's like they say in a full metal jacket, you know, um, uh, you can give your heart to Jesus, but your butt, your butt belongs to the Marines. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> it's, uh, so, and, and the Christian is never confused about whose butt belongs to who, you know? Um, we're always clear about that. The whole self belongs to Jesus. And if discipleship to Christ comes in conflict with being a, being a member of a nation, Jesus wins. That's just the way it is. You see what I'm saying? So that's where it goes. Um, there you have it. All right. Um, people use God's name without reverence for him. We do this, uh, you know, this is probably the main thing you think of when you think about taking the name of the Lord in vain. And, uh, and, and, and the problem is there's no reverence. There's no awe. How can you use God's name lightly? Profanity, careless speech, Broken vows, open sin, and meaningless exclamations, all cheapen God's name. These treat God's name as empty of the reality for which it stands. Um, and we engage in this, profanity, careless speech. Um, we speak often before we should really talk. Um, very often the best thing to do is just be quiet for a while, listen. Um, we, you know, if you've, if you've been a parent, you've had to teach your child this, right? Don't think about the next thing you're going to say. Right? Listen to me. Um, try to understand what I'm saying to you. As long as you're thinking about the next words that are going to come out of your mouth, you're not listening. Um, and, and very often, because of that, what we say without reference to the one we're talking to is, 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 is ridiculous. It's gooblygook. Um, and, of course, that's true. that's true when we're having a conversation with someone as much as it is with how we speak to God. Um, very often we use his name without reference to, without reference to him at all. Um, these treat God's name as empty um, of the reality for which it stands. Um, and and any time we speak of God as empty, um, it's, it's a significant problem. How can you honor God's name? I honor and love God's name in which I was baptized by keeping my promises and by upholding honor in relationships charity in society, justice in law, uprightness in vocation, and holiness in worship. All right. Oh, I love this phrase. I honor and love God's name in which I was baptized. Do you see what's going on? What name were you baptized into? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Otherwise, we need to talk and we need to figure out a plan, okay? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the name of the triune God. Um, and you'll note, if you ever... Pay attention to the baptism, which I encourage you to do. Um, now we, we're in the habit of saying, name this child, right? Or, or what is your name? And we do that not only because it's embarrassing when you forget their name, uh, but, but because you come with your name. And, it's in, and, it's, and we don't just say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I say, Joe, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we do that? Because to have a name is an expression of the divine image in us. Just the fact we have a name uh, and, and 
this is kind of common in all cultures. You know, it's only in sci-fi movies where where the aliens will not have names. You know, it's like we are Borg, things like that. Um, no Star Trek fans with us today. That's that's lamentable. Uh, but but it's to say that. Uh, that to have a name is to, is to speak to our uniqueness, to speak to our personhood, for instance. Um, but we've been baptized into God's name. And what we do, uh, and, and we honor his name and love his name, uh, by keeping our promises. Um, and I would add to that by not making promises we cannot keep, um, which happens all too often, right? So you tell your teacher, I'll have the paper to you by Tuesday. And then Tuesday night comes along, it's like, can I get Thursday? <laughs> it's, it gets stretched out, right? And, and you become a person who's unreliable in that. And it might have been better, and I think a lot of professors will tell you this, it might have been better to just turn it in on Tuesday. Just show me what you've got, please. Um, I would say as well in that, that, uh, that if you make an obligation to someone, keep it. Um, and if you can't keep it, you've got to find somebody who will. Um, this is true in business, right? If you say, I'm going to do this for you. This is, this is the nature of our relationship in business. It's my job to do this, to provide this little service, to do whatever it may be. And, uh, and if I fail, I will get you someone else. Or if I'm unable to do it, I will get you someone else. Um, and this is why if you've ever hired a contractor, you know, keep in mind, get a bonded contractor. Why? So that if they don't do it, somebody else will. Um, and you'll have that, you'll have that there. Um, all right. Um, lastly, by upholding honor in relationships, charity and society, justice and law, uprightness and vocation and holiness and worship. Um, we, we very often have relationships which are not characterized by honor. Um, they're characterized by something else. You know, well, what can I get out of him? What can I get out of her? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling supported in this whole thing. Like, and that does not mean be a, be a doormat. What it means is upholding honor, saying how we honor each other is, is ultimately the important thing in our, in our friendship or in our marriage or in our um, whatever it may be, business relationship. Um, charity in society. Does this mean that we, we uphold, you know, we, we, we pay our dues to, uh, to the United Way? No, it means that in, in civil discourse, in our conversations, in our political uh, 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 language, um, in political speech, we maintain charity, um, which is getting increasingly difficult to do because uh, charity has been almost thrown right out the door. It's like the way you know that uh, a politician is on your side is not by the policy they hold, it's how they speak of their opponent. Um, that's not a charitable position to hold. Um, you know, he believes that. Well, he obviously believes that because he's evil. That's not charitable. Um, a charitable way to say it is, well, I can see how he would think that. Um, but I'm saying another thing. You know, and you just say, uh, you hold to it. Okay. Um, justice in law. Um, we do not get outraged when there's injustice in our law, and we darn well should. Uh, there are injustices in law over and over and over again. You know, people released from prison, uh, serving 18-year sentences for crimes they didn't commit, put in prison by a jury that was uh, really failed in their duties, by prosecutors who dredged up evidence that was not real, um, who, impugned, who, put, who placed a false motive on someone that wasn't there. 
um, who, uh, and, and you find that 18 years after they started up in prison, they find, you know, conclusive evidence that this guy didn't do it. And then, and then what? You know, this should be a significant question for us. How, how can we have a just society when that's the case? Um, how can we have a just society, and this is, this is a question I'm asking you a lot, how can we have a just society when, uh, when people are being uh, imprisoned for, um, for longer terms and longer sentences, and you can actually map it out, uh, and, and certain races are imprisoned for longer sentences, depending on the crime? How's that happen? How's that work? Um, so, uh, and I would say this, if you ever have the opportunity to serve on a jury, take your duty very, very, very seriously. <laughs> Um, uh, and, uh, and, and exercise that duty um, well uh, because you have someone's, you have, a, you have justice in your hand. Um, and lastly, holiness and worship, which we've said a, said a good deal about this morning. Uh, but I would, I would add one to it, which is that if you come here on a Sunday, or really any other day, with, with a crisis on your conscience about something you've done or said or uh, something that just weighs on you, um, that's not just a minor, not just a minor failing. is a big deal thing. Um, I urge you to take it to, to take it to one of us clergy and and, have, and, and make a confession, um, because holiness and worship is is uh, it, it's like this. It's like uh, it's like in a marriage uh, when when man and woman are in conflict, and the husband comes home and he knows his wife is mad at him, and he pulls her into his arms and gives her a big kiss on the mouth. And she's like, what are you doing? Right? Get away from me. Like, uh, it's not that she doesn't love him. It's that that, that that kind of affection is just out of place when there's conflict. Right? So I would say uh, if you have something which is, which is really weighing upon your relationship with the Lord and, and it has not been confessed and it has not been absolved and you feel it in your day-to-day life and, you are, and you're worn down by it, coming and receiving the Eucharist is, is ridiculous. It, it's, it's stripped of all meaning. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I want to include, and, and this is not to say that God sort of like spurns our advances. That's not the way it works. Um, God is always acting to restore us to, to relationship with him. Uh, but he does this by moving upon us to move us to repentance. Um, so I want to leave it there. Okay, what is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat, which means rest. God commanded Israel to set apart each seventh day following six days of work for rest and worship. All right, we know that uh, in the Old Testament, every Saturday was Shabbat, uh, this, this day on which uh, no work takes place, uh, nothing is done. Uh, there, there can be little tasks just so you know you, you can eat and so that you can, uh, you can you know, uh, it's, it's not a sin to pull back the covers on the bed, right? It's, it's that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, and I've, I've learned this going, going to Israel, you know, I'm going in, in June and I, I tried to rent a car on Shabbat, not happening in Jerusalem, like nobody rents cars on Shabbat. So I have to rent the car on Friday and return it uh, early Sunday morning. Um, and the reason for this is simple, that no work happens. Uh, everything is shut down. Um, only essential things are in place. 
Um, so, so it's something to keep in mind is that we come out of a religious tradition and uh, at times the church has been very Sabbatarian is what we would call it. And, uh, and, and uh, that Sabbath rest is, is, is observed uh, wholly. And we'll talk more about the transition between Saturday and Sunday in a bit. Why should you rest on the Sabbath? I rest as Israel was to rest because God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation. The Sabbath rest brought rhythm to life, work and worship, freedom from slavery to unending labor, and awareness that God is Lord of all time, including mine. This is probably the last thing, you know, this last phrase is something to keep in mind, that because God is the creator of all things, he's the Lord of time, which he also created. And here's something that'll happen is, if you live, even just, a, and you find this very easily, if you live a stretch of maybe a month and, and you miss Sunday, um, you will start to live as if God doesn't exist. He drops out of the picture. Um, he's gone. Um, but uh, when you maintain just that first, just the, and remember, we're in the very first hours of the week, yes, right now? In those very first hours of the week are given over to God, it, it consecrates the whole. Um, so if you lose the first, you lose the whole. If you, if you take on the first uh, as, a, as an act of worship, it redeems the whole. Um, the purpose of the Sabbath is also to, uh, to remind us that we have been, uh, our freedom uh, from this, this unending life of toil and labor and work, uh, we've, we've been redeemed from it. Um, and we experience, and, and the, the people of Israel experience this, freedom from slavery, freedom from unending labor. Um, remember what was going on in Egypt during that time. Did they get a day of rest? Not at all. Uh, they were working endlessly at tasks which were, which were becoming more and more meaningless. Um, I would say that you know, no, one in this room, no one in this room is a slave, right? I mean, we could all walk off whatever we do any day we want, you know, and, and it would probably mess our lives up, but, you know, we, we could do it, right? And we could disappear and we could, we could, you know, drive off into the sunset if we wanted to and, you know, whatever. Um, there is freedom. Um, nothing, is, nothing is a given. Um, however, we have to say that very often we become uh, enslaved to our work um, where... Um, well, you know how it works, right? You may have had times when you were in immense debt. And you say, man, I really just don't feel like going to work today. But I got to because, you know, Citibank has to get paid. You know, they've got to get their money. I, I can't live if they don't get their money. You know, the, the people who finance my truck, they've got to get money. Um, and so we don't have that freedom. And that's why I want to encourage you to, you know, have, have some savings, right? Savings will change everything because you'll say, you know, that's the difference between able to, being able to say, I got to go today. I can't, there's, I can't, there's no flexibility and I've got to do the best I very well can because I am a slave. And on the other hand saying, you know what? I could walk off if it, if it became too much, I could leave this job and we'd be fine and our family would be fine and everything would be good for about three months or four months or five months. You get the point, right? And it changes your entire attitude towards your work. It changes everything. Because you say, oh, you say to your boss in your mind, you don't say this directly, but you say, you know, I'm not your slave. You know, I, I believe in what we're doing. I'm excited about it. 
I draw a lot of a lot of satisfaction from what we do, uh, but you can't treat me like that. Do you see? Do you see how it changes things? Uh, because I'm free. And I will tell you this, having that boundary line that says, if you call me into work on Sunday, I'm not coming, can be the exercise of that freedom. And a lot of people have a hard time saying that. Um, and, and you might not be able to say that at this point, <laughs> but, but to try to get there, right? Um, and I've known students through the years who've said, I'm really excited about my education at Baylor, for instance. I love my professors, I love what I'm studying, I love all this, uh, but sometimes on Sunday afternoon I am tired and I want to take a nap and, I'm, uh, and, and I feel like a slave to the university. Now if you did all your work on Saturday and had Sunday off, you would stop feeling that way. And, and your education itself would become an act of your freedom. Um, so it's something to consider. All right. Um, where do you learn about the holiness of time? In creation, through the sun, moon, and stars, in the law, through Israel's sacrificial calendar, and in the church's liturgy, patterned after temple worship, I learn that time belongs to God and is ordered by him. We learn this through the, I mean, through creation, we learn that time is ordered by God, that time is sacred. Um, here's how. Um, Do you ever notice just how beautiful it can be around dusk when that when the sun's going down and it's just it's just still and everything is just it's just beautiful and 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 there's a transition going on from from light to darkness um, there's something in us as human beings which which sees that time is very sacred um, and and before we had electric lights and television sets uh, we used to notice this a lot more because you had to actually get ready for it to get dark you had to make sure that there was oil in the lamp and candles on the, on the mantle. You had to make sure all that was there because you knew that, uh, that something very much outside of you was going to take place and outside of your control was going to happen. It was going to happen every day. Um, part of the modernist uh, prerogative is to say we're not ruled by day and night. We've ruled that. We've figured that out. We got that solved. Um, and the reality is we don't have it solved at all. Um, there are certain places you would not go if it was dark outside. And as soon as it's dark, what do you think to do? Oh, we got to go home, right? Because <laughs> it's dark and we can't, we can't stay here. Um, so I want to put that in front of you. We learn that we live in God's universe. We live in God's world. Um, we also learn it uh, through the stars, don't we? We learn it through certain things that happen in, uh, in, in creation. Uh, by the way, you may not know this, but large parts of the, uh, of the church's calendar are tied to uh, lunar events. Did you know this? Um, you know, Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox every year. So if you ever look up during Holy Week, you'll see the whole, you'll see the whole, you'll see the full moon right there because it's Holy Week and Holy Week happens during that full moon. Um, why do we do that? To remember that this has happened in time, that God has entered into time. Um, and so therefore, the, the church's calendar runs off of that. The church's liturgy runs off of that. Um, we actually keep, uh, we keep festivals to this day, to this very day of harvest, right? What do you think Pentecost is? Well, in the Old Testament, it's a harvest festival for the spring wheat harvest. 
You plant, uh, you plant, and then 50 days later, your wheat sprung up and you harvest it. And you've got bread. Isn't this an amazing thing? And it's all because God intends it all the time, and he's constantly working to do this. Um, I think, I think some, of you are, some of you are ranchers, farmers, and you know how this works. You, you get a certain attitude and certain, certain knowledge of how life actually works that often city dwellers are detached from. You know, I go buy my beef at HEB, and I go buy my flour at HEB, and I, I don't think about where it comes from. Um, but ancient people did, and they knew that it came because of these seasons and these years, and, and, uh, and attentiveness to that matters. Uh, one more thing on this. Um, one of the things that our uh, friends in Rwanda are teaching, um, teaching uh, farmers in Rwanda is to see themselves as partners with God in the work of creation, in the work of, of, of harvesting from creation. So their work is, is, a, is a divine vocation. Um, and and uh, I was talking to, to Matthew, who runs this program. He said, so, so how do you determine when uh, people should plant and when they should harvest? And how do you tell them what, what that should be? And he said, oh, we don't do that. Uh, we, we tell them to be attentive to their crops and be attentive to God in prayer. And to ask God what they should do based on what they see in their crops. And everything's fine. Right? Because he says, I, all of it is, all of it is uh, there's, there's no one date that works. You have, to, you have to be attentive. So he says, this is what I do in my, in my, in my demonstration farm, and that's how we do it. Do you see what's going on? Is, is you, you know through this that you live in God's world. Okay. And, and, be, and the, by the liturgy being tied to these things, we know that we live in God's world. Okay. That's enough of that. Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? As its Lord, Jesus both kept and fulfilled the Sabbath. And, of course, we know this, that Jesus keeps that Sabbath um, um, well. How does he do it? Well, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath to read. Um, he goes up to Jerusalem for the major uh, pilgrimage festivals. Um, he keeps Passover. And he keeps all of these commanded things. Um, and he does it, um, well, he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, Yes. Why is he Lord of the Sabbath? Well, because all creation was fashioned through the sun. Um, and, but yet he keeps it. How does Jesus bring Sabbath as God's eternal gift to you? Jesus now offers himself as the source of my true rest, from slavery to sin, from the wasteland of human striving, and from Satan's legacy of futile toil, pain, disease, and death. Um, There's a, there's a huge understanding in the New Testament that what Jesus has established is an eternal Sabbath uh, for those who turn to him in faith. Eternal rest from labor. Um, meaning that we cease from our kind of striving for God's favor and we, we rely upon Jesus and the rest which he offers. Um, so, and this is why I think keeping Sabbath and keeping a Sabbath is an act of faith. Would you agree with that? Because here's how it can be. It could be, you know, that one day a week of not working can be seen by many to be harder to do than a tithe, if you're really honest about it. Because you'll say, that's a seventh of my week, not a tenth. That's a seventh. I will tell you, keeping my day off, because Sundays are not a day off for me, by the way. I, I know you know that. <laughs> but keeping my, my Sabbath day, which is Friday, if you're interested, um, is one of the hardest disciplines I keep, or try to keep. You know, just to kind of keep email at bay, 
is, is really difficult. Um, I find that as soon as Thursday evening hits, I'm getting emails from everybody demanding my attention. And I have to say, I will deal with you Saturday morning, right? It's, it's that level of, of things. Um, so keep all that in mind. Um, but we are saved from the slavery of sin, from the wasteland of human striving, from Satan's legacy of futile toil, pain, disease, and death. Uh, Adam is cursed to work the land um, uh, because of his sin. But at the same time, we find that that, uh, that that Sabbath is built into creation. What does it mean that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God? When the church is perfected in Christ, all believers will be completely free from sin and its curse and established in an eternity of love, adoration, and joy. This will be our unending Sabbath rest. Um, and, and let me just say this. You know, if you're not in the habit of keeping a day of Sabbath, uh, you will not really look forward to heaven that much. Because you'll say, well, what meaning am I going to have if it's not in my work? All this deeply meaningful work that I engaged in constantly. You know, if I don't have that in heaven, what am I going to do? Um, and I've actually talked to people through years who are like, I, I think I'll probably start a factory or something, you know, when I'm, when I'm in. You know, no, 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 that's not how it works. Um, I also find that, that people who are constantly engaged in labor, they find it very hard to accept gifts when they come. Why? Because it's like, but I didn't work for that. Yeah, it's okay. You'll be fine. Accept it, okay? <laughs> but, but it's hard. It's like, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't achieve that. I didn't, I didn't win that. Um, it makes it very difficult. How do you celebrate this Sabbath rest with the church now? I join in the church's weekly worship and participation in God's heavenly rest, which brings order, meaning, and holiness to the other six days of the week. Um, joining in the church's worship on, on, on Sundays in particular is what gives meaning to this, to this life of Sabbath. Uh, the, the Sabbath is set aside in Scripture as, as a time to worship God. Um, it's not just a day off. Um, it's a day which is, on which uh, labor is removed from your, from, your, from your task list so that you can worship. Um, let's ask this question lastly. Why does the church worship on the first day of the week rather than the seventh? The church worships on the first day of the week in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. Um, in the ancient church, uh, Christians would keep Sabbath on Saturdays, and they would often go in and worship uh, wherever they were gathering on Sunday morning and then go to work again. Um, and as Europe became Christianized, that's why we have a Saturday-Sunday uh, weekend. Um, it's based purely in that. It's, it's we, keep, we do both, right? Um, but we worship on Sundays because the resurrection happened on Sunday. Um, and if you read over and over and over again, right, you'll hear it in the reading of the Acts of the Apostles today, on the first day of the week. Um, and if you read about uh, Jesus' resurrection appearances in, in the Gospel of John, on the first day of the week, right? So the church was being put in this mode of worshiping, of meeting the risen Christ on the first day of the week. And we've kept it up ever since. Um, every Sunday, by the way, is a, is a feast day. And we mean that so strongly that even during Lent, which is a penitential season, Sundays are not a part of Lent. Did you know this? Sundays do not count in Lent. They're feast days. So whatever Lenten discipline you're doing, it's, it's ceased on, on Sunday. 
Isn't that a great gift? And, then, and, and I would say, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are thinking about, and I've got about two minutes, I really don't, but a lot of people are thinking about at Christ Church is how they can make Sundays really special in their families, how they can make uh, Sundays really special in their, in their uh, homes that they live in with maybe other students, where they say, hey, you know, put down the books, friends. We're going kayaking, you know. It's, put down the books. We're going for a drive. I mean, did any of you grow up in households that did, that did the Sunday drive? Yeah, a lot of you did. What a great thing, you know. And it's, it's a total blast, you know. Uh, take the time on Sunday evenings to drive through Cameron Park as the sun's setting and go take your kids for ice cream. You know, Sundays uh, are, are a day to experience God's love and his care, uh, to really and truly rest. Um, so I want to offer that to you. Make, make dinner special. Make, you know, uh, uh, take time to take a Sunday nap. I mean, Sunday naps are an institution in our house, and, and, uh, and we demand them of our children, right? It's, it's, we will have our Sunday nap, you hear me? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Uh, so I want to, want to encourage you in that. Uh, these are all great practices and, and really helpful at the end of the day. So we'll begin in a bit.